0: Hi, I'm Abby, and I'd like to extend a very warm welcome to these Sepsis Research Feet Words of Sepsis podcasts. Over the course of eight episodes, we'll be talking to sepsis survivors and their families about their experiences of sepsis. Some of the stories you hear may be quite painful. Many are uplifting. They're stories of shock, fear, sometimes loss, often courage, but also of hope. Sepsis is a condition that still takes the lives of some 50,000 people in the UK every year. That's about five lives lost every hour. Our hope is that through these podcasts, many more people will become aware of sepsis and that some of the loss and suffering related to sepsis can be prevented as you increase your knowledge and the knowledge of others. So do please listen, share these words of sepsis and help to raise awareness and save lives. In this episode, you'll be hearing from Gemma and Helen, whose children both developed sepsis seemingly out of the blue, but with terrifying consequences. Gemma's son William was three when he developed sepsis. He'd been at nursery all week and she noticed he was tired when she picked him up, but she didn't think too much of it at the time.
1: I took him to the play centre to meet my sister um, with her little boy and we're at the play centre and he didn't eat his tea and for him not to eat his tea was quite unusual um, and I was like oh, I hope he's not got a bug. Um, my husband Mike was working away in Scotland for the weekend and then we were in the car on the way home and he was sick so I thought oh, he's picked a tummy bug up from nursery again not you know not overly concerned and over the weekend he developed temperature you know just really in himself Quite lethargic on Saturday got quite concerned I just couldn't bring his temperature down rang 111 spoke to them and in true typical kids fashion by the time the doctor from 111 rang me back he was running around uh, happy as Larry oh, great he's fine I had a good chat with the doctor you know keep an eye on him and then Saturday night he went back downhill Again, really high temperature. And there was nothing that I could particularly put my finger on that I would say was concerning me on its own. But as a whole, I'd just not seen William that poorly. And I was thinking, am I thinking it's worse because my husband's away. And I'd also got um, my little girl who was one. So, you know, when you've got a three-year-old and a one-year-old, you're in a constant state of exhaustion. So everything always, you know, seems worse in your head. And Sunday night, Mike got home from Scotland and William seemed to have picked up a little bit. So I think, oh great, you know, we're, we're over the worst. Sunday night, he went back downhill again. Again, high temperature. He developed a rash through the night, not eating, not drinking, just really not himself from this really, you know, whirlwind of a three year old to just wanting to lay on the sofa, um, not really wanting to eat. Got a bit of a cough, a bit snotty, everything that you could put down to a typical nursery bug. But with the rash and his temperature still struggling to keep that under control, took him to the GP on Monday morning. Uh, GP examined him, thought he'd got a virus, you know, keep doing what you're doing, keep up with the Calpol, it should be better in a day or two. I came home from the GP and I said to my husband I'm just not happy, it's not... I don't know if we've been very fortunate that I've never experienced the child this poorly. And again, I, I couldn't put my finger on one particular thing, but I've just never seen William this poorly. And all day Monday, thought he'd got a sore throat. So we were giving him, trying to get ice pops in him again, trying to get some fluid in him. And he was on the sofa and he he asked to go to bed. And three-year-olds don't ask to go to bed. Went upstairs and laid on the bed with him. And he had been so unsettled all day. He'd got a high temperature. He'd got a bit of a cough that it just not, it was exhausted and he just couldn't sleep. And he'd finally gone to to sleep about nine o'clock at night. And Mike saw an article on Facebook and it said that Scarlet Fever was doing the rounds again. And so I went on the NHS website, had a look at Scarlet Fever. And I said, that kind of ties in, you know, like the rash, the sore throat, the temperature. And we had the conversation of, he's just gone to sleep, like he's exhausted. You know, maybe it would just be best to let him get some sleep tonight and he'll start to feel better tomorrow. And something just made me say, "Do you know what? If it is scarlet fever and he needs some kind of antibiotics, then if I take him tonight, that's twelve hours sooner. He's going to start to feel better." And my husband agreed. We rang one 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 again and explained, and they said, "Take him into your local he see the out of hours doctor." Um, still at that point, didn't have any idea that it was seriously poorly. Um, my niece had had scarlet fever a couple of months before and, you know, a few days feeling unwell and she'd bounced back fine. So Georgia was fast asleep in bed, our little girl. And I'd said to Mike, you stop at home. I'll go and get some antibiotics. We'll we'll be home in an hour or two. As always happens when these things happen, my car was in the garage. So I had to take Mike's car. And we got to A&E and waited for the lady to see him. And I I remember him sat on my knee in A&E And I just wanted to cuddle him because, like, you just want to cuddle your babies when they're poorly. Uh, And he just wanted to be left alone, which was just not uncharacteristically like William. And she shouted us through and she started listening to his chest. And she said, "Um, I'm just going to ring for a paediatrician to see him. You think, all right, well, you know, this is not a children's hospital per se, so don't panic you start to get that feeling that something's not quite right Uh, and then she said we're going to take him round to resource and I said resource yeah yeah there's just uh, there's not a bed free on the ward right okay Um, and at this point he was drinking he got a little sippy cup and he couldn't we couldn't fill it fast enough he was drinking so much water again I didn't know at the time what what that meant Um, and we went round on to resource and it was all still quite relaxed and the nurses were quite chatty and then a Female doctor came over and she was like examining him and she kept pressing this rash, pressing this rash, and uh, she just said, "Do you understand what's happening?" And I said, "No." I said, "Has he got meningitis?" And she said, "No, he's got sepsis," because obviously a rash. You know, we all we all know about the rash and the glass test, the meningitis, and she said he's got sepsis, and I said, "Sepsis, what's that?" And then she started to, you know, explain he's quite poorly. And I said, do I need to get my husband here? And she said, yeah, now. And from that minute the room filled up and the whole atmosphere changed and everything got very scary, very, very quickly. Obviously Mike was stuck at home with our little girl and no car. I rang my mom in an absolute state. Uh, She shot through, our sister-in-law came over to our house and Mike's parents so that Mike could come to the hospital. Uh, and it, it was all a bit of a blur, really. And the next thing I know, they were from you know thinking that he just got scarlet fever and we were just there to get some tablets to saying he is critically poorly and um, we're giving him lots of fluids and antibiotics, but we think we're going to have to put him into an induced coma um, to give his body a rest. And like your head can't catch up, you can't comprehend how... He was sat there awake at this point point, um and he was so brave they had to try and get cannulas into his feet. And Mike arrived and my mum arrived and the decision was made that, yeah, we do need to put him into an induced coma and he needs to be transferred to paediatric intensive care, which they don't have at our local hospital. And they were making some phone calls. They said it's there's a chance that he'll have to be airlifted to... I think it was Sheffield or Birmingham, but if we can, we'll get him in in Queen's Medical at Nottingham, which is obviously the closest one to us. And it's you, you just you just can't comprehend like how, how we ended up here. And they put him to sleep, and we had to go off to the waiting room, and they worked on him all night to stabilize him. And a specialist transport team had to come in from Notts. Fortunately, PICU um, at Queen's had got a bed for him. And they said, Look, you can come and just give him a kiss before we set off to Queen's. By this time, it was probably six o'clock, on six o'clock in the morning. And we went back through, and it was unrecognizable from that little boy that had bought in only hours before. Um, It was pumped with that much fluid. He he was just obviously intubated. And I I think at that point, it kind of hits you that this, this is really serious. And he said, look, all the time it's taken us to get him onto this transport machinery, when we get to Nottingham, it's all got to be put back onto the hospital machinery. So if you want to go home, if you want to go and get a coffee, you know, you'll not be able to see him straight away. And I just said to Mike, just get me to the hospital. I just need to be near him. Just get me to the hospital. So we drove straight across to Queen's Medical and it was rush hour traffic. And I remember seeing... We were like on the dual carriageway and there was a chap next to me, obviously really frustrated that he was on his way to work and stuck in this traffic and just thinking I would do anything to be, that to be my bad day today. And we got to Queen's and it's not a hospital I was familiar with at that point, second home now, but i would never been before. I think we were wandering around the car park looking like, like a deer in the headlight and some nurse came and said, can I help you? I said, we're trying to find PICU. And she said, I work there, come on, I'll take you up. And we got up there and they showed us to the family room to sit and wait. And there were two ambulance guys that I recognised from King's Mill. And I said, you brought my little boy in, you brought my little boy in, how is he? And they said, we we just drove the ambulance, the the doctors were in the back. Um, But we didn't have to stop and that's always a good sign. And we were just chatting to those ambulance drivers and a consultant came through and he said, I'm so sorry, but William's heart stopped. We don't know if we're gonna be able to get it going again, so you need to come and and be with him. And I I think that's just like our world collapsed. Um, You can't comprehend what, what you've been told. And I think Mike had to physically pick me up off the floor Uh, and thankfully by the time they'd got us down the corridor to where he was being treated they said you know it it, is going again it it, it, his heart's going again Um, and there must have been 30 people around him working on him it was like something off telly like you see on casualty and and I was just shouting please don't let him die don't let my little boy die please don't let him die and Mike dragged me away and said you're distracting him they need to do the job you're distracting him so we went off and It was a kind of, they came and explained to us that, you know, at the minute we're working literally minute by minute, he is extremely poorly. They said if his heart stops again, we don't think he's going to be strong enough to pull through. They were talking about getting an ECMO machine, which is a heart and lung bypass, brought in from another hospital. And we thought we were waiting for that all day. That's like the the biggest form of, of life support, really so that his body could rest and and then we were told that it was coming and then it wasn't coming it was coming and um we were later told that actually they those machines are so like precious and so few that they have to have a case-by-case meeting to decide where to release them And, and the team from the i think it might have been birmingham hospital where it was meant to be coming from uh deemed william too poorly to warrant taking that machine across to nottingham um they said that if they put him on it it would never come it would never come off but thankfully
0: for us he didn't need that machine William was in a coma for seven days and it was within the first couple of days that Gemma and her husband were told about the damage sepsis had done to their son
1: his hands his feet his nose his ears were all starting to to go purple and black it was a plastic surgeon's came and sat us down in the little room where you get bad news and said he is going to suffer some degree of of limb loss and I said is he going to live and they said I can't promise you that we're doing everything we can and I said well come and talk to me about what he's going to lose when we know he's going to live because that's all I, I care about right now so it was day seven when they extubated him and that was quite difficult because other children had come in on PICU and been intubated and extubated probably within a period of 24 hours and you know within an hour we sat up eating ice cream and chatting to the mum and dad and I was so excited to hear his voice again and to see his smile and felt like we'd waited forever and obviously once they started to bring him round, uh, that that didn't happen he was he was very sleepy he'd it, been extubated uh, intubated for a long time and it was days and days before he even spoke and they decided to do a brain scan which revealed that he'd got some brain injury and then they weren't sure if he was going to speak again and I think there was a we were waiting for this almighty high and it it was just a a further week of like bad news he'd got a blood clot his lung kept collapsing he had to keep having chest strains in but he, he pulled through and against all odds really I think there was a you know i remember the doctor saying we're doing literally everything we can Uh, we're even giving him vitamins because it won't hurt um you know anything that that might just give him that edge to help him to fight and uh and he did he he fought so hard bless him and thankfully he pulled through and it was then kind of a case of waiting to see what damage the sepsis had left and Um, what damage the you know the drugs that he used to treat it had, had done it felt like a long wait at the time I think now we're grateful for that because William's been very fortunate.
0: And it's been a long journey of recovery.
1: That was the end of January and he didn't have his his amputations until the beginning of March but they waited for his body to really make clear what you know what was going to survive and what wasn't and When he first came round, they thought he was going to lose both his ears because his ears had gone purple. And by giving them time, both his ears have fully recovered. And uh, I'm so grateful they didn't rush in and chop any bits off that, that didn't need to be chopped off. But yeah, beginning of March, he had surgery to amputate both his legs and parts of nine fingers. That was the second of March. And I think that was really the start of his recovery because there was just no stopping him after that. You know, He, we came home on leave on, I think it was the 11th, um, thinking we'd had to be go back to be admitted on the, the 12th. And we went back on the 12th and they actually formally discharged us. It was my 30th birthday on the 13th of March. So it was like the best birthday present in the world. Within weeks, he was been fitted for his prosthetic legs and He's just gone from strength to strength. He's he's absolutely um, amazed us all. He's just blown us away. He's um, so happy and so positive and there's no stopping him really. He is like a popular little boy in his school. He's got all the little girls like to mother hen him. So uh, he's always got a little like harem of girls around him. It just, it just gets on with it. He's got, um, unfortunately, we've just recently found out that the sepsis actually caused some damage to the growth plate in his left leg. So that's got to actually be amputated a little bit higher. So he'll be like a bilateral through knee amputee. So he is wearing his legs a bit less than normal. But I mean, to him, that's just a great excuse to fly around on his skateboard in the playground. School have got him a skateboard and he, he whizzes around and you know you have to watch your ankles with him and yeah he, he just loved life like I, I remember coming home from hospital and we got a big trampoline in the garden and just thinking ouch like thinking that we were going to have this little boy that wouldn't do all the things that you know a normal six-year-old boy should be doing and I don't know I don't know what I thought it would do but I just it was so hard to imagine and everything that Everything that we um worried that he would or wouldn't do, everything that we had concerns about, is just proved as wrong, and now he flies out the patio doors, across the garden, on all on all fours, at an absolute rate of knots, climbs up the steps, throws himself onto the trampoline and just bounces around like an absolute nutter. There's um there's not much that, you know, that he can't do and he's He's is, is fiercely independent. He it, it does so much for himself. There's always a way. Don't ever tell him, you know, you can't do that um, because there is always a way and
0: if there's a way, William will find it. Helen's son Toby was 10 when he contracted sepsis. Helen says at first it seemed to be a typical bout of flu. He
2: went to school, normal uh, little boy going off to school. He came home with a bit of a, a cold, a bit of a sore throat, after a couple of days it hadn't got much better so we took him to our GP just to be on the safe side and she said give him some calpol give him some neurofen as well if you want to mix it up and you know be fine so we did that and he did pick up a bit and he went back to school on the Thursday and he even played in a hockey tournament on the Friday but on the, the hockey tournament it was quite cold it was a bit miserable he wasn't his usual self he didn't take part as much as he would normally he sat sat out quite a bit and uh he was just out of sorts but nothing more than you think a bit of a nasty cold he came home was very lethargic fell asleep on the sofa which is totally unlike him because he's a very active little boy and um i was going out that evening with for a friend's birthday and my husband said oh go he's absolutely fine I'll just put him to bed early and, you know, give him a hot water bottle and what have you. Before he went to bed, he was sick. So my husband called me. He s- said, Toby wants you to come home. And that in itself was a bit unusual because he wasn't a particularly needy little boy for me. And I th- thought, that is really odd. So a straight home. And he, yeah, he was poorly. He was in bed by that time. He'd been sick again and he had really bad diarrhoea. He was quite hot. He had a temperature, but nothing that made me think this is really bad. He was just poorly. That night, he slept in our bed because I thought, A, I don't want to be up all night. It, you know, he needed to be close so I could check that he was, could get to the bathroom. But during the night, his diarrhea got really bad and he was really, really thirsty and he became quite delirious I think I don't know if that's the right word or not but he was saying just very odd things like uh, I'm on an obstacle course get I didn't win get me off and all this and I thought Toby you know you're dreaming he was just I'd never seen him like this he wasn't sick again but again the diarrhea was really bad and his temperature was high so I put cool flannels on him and then it didn't get any better was Calpol and ibuprofen so I watched him I just thought he just seems a little bit listless and the temperature was worrying me now this was a Saturday so our GP is shut and there's something I just thought I think I'm going to call 111 just to get some advice on how to bring the temperature down or w- whatever we needed to do I called 111 and I have to say they were Utterly fantastic. They talked me through it, and within 10 minutes, a doctor called me back and he talked me through everything, and he said, I think we should call an you should call an ambulance. Just to get the hospital to check him out because the GP's shut. So I called the ambulance, and this was probably about, this was about 10 o'clock. One thing in hindsight. The ambulance took two hours to come. I wish I'd just put him in the car and taken him to hospital, but I didn't. And uh, the ambulance came and where they came up to the bedroom and they started looking at him and they checked his skin and they said it's blotchy and sepsis, I heard said for the first time. Now, I, I didn't know anything about sepsis at all. My husband did because his father had unfortunately had that. Uh, not not too long before um, when he was unwell so a red flags started to go and then and then they checked him over they put him into the ambulance and he was blue lighted to our local hospital which was the Luton and Dunstable Hospital and he was rushed straight through to a cubicle where a nurse immediately saw him now in again, hindsight if I had taken him we'd probably have sat in a waiting room for a, a couple of hours anyway So the fact was he was seen very, very quickly. And the nurse, and I remember her name, Helen, I I think she possibly saved his life because she started to pump him with antibiotics and fluid. Then the children's doctor, the paediatrician, came down to look at Toby and he said, I think he's got scarlet fever and he's also got flu. And combined, this is all totally... uh, overreacting with his body so we'll take him upstairs to the ward and we'll put him in a side room and we'll monitor him he needs antibiotics intravenously so we went upstairs to a side room in the children's ward and Toby just his diarrhea was getting worse and he kept saying I'm so thirsty I'm so thirsty so they were giving him water on a little sponge then he was linked up to some machines, and forgive me, I don't know what they're all called, but these machines I'd seen on ER and the various hospital programs where they monitor your, your heart rate and bloods. And then everyone started rushing around a bit more and saying, right, I think we're going to, um, his, 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 his uh, blood Pressure is really decreasing and we don't like the look of this. We're going to intubate him to help him breathe. And at this point, I thought, this is all just completely spiralling out of control. And there were lots of, lots of activities and I was asked to sort of leave the room. And that that was that. And I called my husband who was take, uh, with my other son, taking him to a school entrance exam. And um, I said, this, this isn't looking... This isn't looking very good. It's gone from we're at hospital, but he's he's now got a tube to help breathe. And they kept going into this room with bags and bags of saline, and and they were pumping with lots of water. And then sporadically, a nurse would come out and just say, "You know, it's okay." And do you want to go to the parent and family room? And I just sat outside and thought, no, I just want to be completely close to him, but through this door and then my husband arrived which was good because we could just start supporting each other and the doctor that had originally saw us said can i come, can you come to, to my office i need to have a chat with you he said your son is very very ill he he's got what we think is a form of toxic shock syndrome where his body is fighting against it's, it, itself so he had a throat infection he had the flu And together, they'd built up something which the body was fighting against. So it was a pretty dire situation. And I believe now that that is what sepsis is. It's a sort sort of fighting, uh, something fighting the body. But he was very blunt. He said, you know, there's a 60% chance of survival. And so that's when we started to realise this was very serious. They also said that, we, that they didn't have a children's paediatric intensive care unit at that hospital. So they would have to get into a London hospital or Stoke Mandeville for specialist treatment. And that's when they said they were they, they phoned around and it sort of time started. It was quite slow and I and we didn't really know what was going on. And it's just, I remember that corridor we were just sort of standing in it, just waiting and not knowing. And then a, and I, Really can't forgive myself for not remembering either the lady's name or the services, but I think they were called the, an angels, am, ambulance angels. But she was dressed in a sort of burgundy, a burgundy outfit, which was very different from the blue of the the general nursing staff and doctors at, at the hospital. And she said, "I am here to safely transport your son by ambulance to St Mary's in London." and I will ensure that he gets there safely. He was on life support machines by this time, and she had to transport all those to, onto another one in an ambulance, and it took that it took about two hours to stabilise him and to make sure that he was uh, able to go in the ambulance. And I just keep coming back to this. I couldn't believe that this had all happened this happened in 12 hours from him being a little bit poorly, nothing unusual with a a 10 year old having an upset tummy and a bit of a temperature and a cold to this. I kept saying, how have we got to this point? So I went with him in the ambulance and she's the, the, the angel doctor sat there the whole time and monitored him and did everything. She was utterly amazing and reassuring in a in a way that you know we will get him to hospital <laughs> so we got to St Mary's and the, the motorway it was pouring with rain it was just a dismal february evening my little boy lying there on life support machines and we we got to St Mary's and he was taken up to the children's ward and I say ward it was it was a centre. He had a big room to himself and they just, the amazing staff there just took over and I've never seen anything like it. We were allowed to stay with him the whole time but the nursing staff were just wonderful and did take me away to go and have a rest in another room but my husband never left Toby's side. But the doctor there uh, did say your son is very, very ill and it's touch and go tonight.
0: Helen says it was hard not to think about the worst case scenario at this point.
2: So it was an absolutely horrific experience. And of course, you know, we had to call our family in to help look after our other son and everyone. It's not just about the the situation. It's about letting people know, sorting out home life and what's going on and, and thinking tomorrow I might not have my son here. And all those thoughts go through your head or, you know, it's always that you think the worst and what what was life going to be like and how could it be and what did I do wrong? You know, how how have we got to this point? So then there's a sort of acceptance where we are at this point. We're in the best place and the support there was just amazing from sort of liaison ladies that were not medically trained, but just were able to help with all sorts of issues about finding us somewhere to stay, making sure we had something to eat, all that sort of thing. Totally amazing. And then the the staff just took over Toby completely, and there were two people monitoring him 24 hours a day. And they spoke about sepsis, and they said that you don't want to be chasing it, you've got to get ahead of sepsis, because if you're chasing it, you might lose. And it was all about we have to get ahead and... They took bloods, and they this computer just would print off these readings every couple of hours, and they'd look at them. Then they'd look at it, you know, and it, they'd rush around a bit, and it for I'd say another twenty four hours, it was like that, totally just not knowing and monitoring, but a sense of relief that he couldn't have been in a better place. And then after that. Sort of 24, 48 hours, I can't really remember, but it, it lifted a bit the, in the room. This sort of I, they got ahead of it. The antibiotics started to work, and they put the, he had a feeding tube and he started to take on the, the the liquid food. And from then I think we just slightly breathed a sigh of relief because it was getting better. But We were told, we don't know how, if this has done any long-term damage to his liver, kidneys, brain. We don't know with this situation. So it was still a horrible place to be. But after a couple of days, it did pick up. He turned the corner and I would say the rest is history. But there was a long process after that to to make sure that he was fully recovered. But he, he recovered in terms of sepsis, really well, really quickly.
0: Toby is now a fit, healthy and very active 15-year-old. Helen's pleased the experience hasn't left any long-term issues for him.
2: He remembers at very little, even about the night he stayed in my bed and that that bit. The memories are just not there, which is good. But I'd say it has had an impact on him. And it's certainly had an impact on us because if he ever, ever had a sore throat again, we're sort of... <sighs> and he was a bit cautious about certain things, although they've got that's gone. But that will always be with us if either of our children have got a sore throat or they have an upset tum. It's, you're just more conscious of, could it be, lead to anything worse? But you just have to... I think everyone, I just urge everyone to be more aware of what can happen in 12 hours. And just be, like you have to chase sepsis, be ahead of the game yourself a bit with it. So just don't let it get to that point.
0: Sepsis came out of nowhere for Gemma and Helen and their children. Both of them are clear about conveying the importance of trusting your instincts as a parent. We really hope that listening to this Words of Sepsis podcast has helped increase your awareness of sepsis. Do check out all eight episodes in the series and share them as widely as you can, using them to start conversations with friends and family about sepsis. It could save a life, possibly even your own. If you've been affected by anything you've heard, or you'd like more information about the groundbreaking research into sepsis that the charity funds, please do visit our website www.sepsisresearch.org.uk where you can also make a donation. You'll be helping us to save lives today and fund research for tomorrow.